Welcome to Act in Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, producer and also an occasional host. On this episode, I'm pleased to first welcome Andrew Clavin onto the show. Andrew Clavin is an award-winning crime novelist, screenwriter, and a regular host at The Daily Wire. He joins me to talk about a new Netflix documentary released last week called Knock Down the House, detailing the rise of 29-year-old Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in the November 2018 congressional primaries. Afterwards, Acton's president and co-founder, Reverend Robert Sirico, addresses religion on the left, as well as the connections between faith and freedom. All the articles referenced in this episode, as well as some additional reading materials, are linked in the show notes, which I post to Acton's blog every Wednesday when our episodes release. And you can find those at blog.acton.org. That's blog.acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. Also, last but not least, don't forget to swing over to acton.org slash line and subscribe to this podcast. If I was a rational person, I would have dropped out of this race a long time ago. Crowley hasn't had a primary challenger in 14 years. He's taken $3 million per cycle. He's going to tell me I'm small, that I'm young, that I'm inexperienced. Joining me to talk about the new Netflix documentary, Knock Down the House, is Andrew Clavin, the award-winning crime novelist, screenwriter, and a regular host at The Daily Wire. Andrew, I am glad to have you on the show. It's nice to be here, Carolyn. Thanks. So this documentary was released about a week ago on May 1st, and it has 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's fared well with critics, unsurprisingly, and it has also been popular with Netflix viewers. Um, It's being called the year's most rousing political documentary, and it follows four far-left women running for Congress in 2018 against establishment Democrats. It's a a very emotional movie, and it really tugs at the heartstrings. As a screenwriter yourself, I want to first ask you, as you were watching this movie, did you notice any tools being used to bias the viewer? Basically, what are the elements in this movie that make it so convincing? Oh, well, they, they stuck to a very tried-and-true American story. It's really a universal story of the little guy up against Goliath, basically. It's about these four people who haven't got a chance. Everybody's entrenched. Uh, they, their opponents are deeply entrenched people in the, in the government, which nobody likes. Nobody ever likes the government. And, uh, and they're standing up for the little guy, and you see them again and again with their impassioned uh, causes. One of them has lost a child and is fighting for universal health care. Uh, Ocasio-Cortez, of course, is in this uh, district uh, that has a lot of minority people, and she's running against this kind of fat-faced white guy who's been... <laughs> in office uh, in the Queen's machine, which is one of the most uh, powerful uh, political machines in the country. So she really is up against something um, of... Of, of real power and of, of truly entrenched power. And so it's a, it's a great story in that regard. And I think that one of the things that the left has always known is that you can use these stories because they appeal to certain things that are true, but they don't necessarily have to say things that are true. Uh, the example that I always use is the example of I, if I show you a film, 
say, a minute-long film about a soldier returning home from the war, and he comes back, and his children see him from a, down the road, and they run out to meet him, and his wife sees him, and she's, you know, finally he's home, and we all tear up, and we feel this very deeply, and then the whole family goes out to McDonald's, and it's an ad, you know. You can use uh, classic stories, universal stories, to sell anything. Um, instead of kind of using this time to almost, you know, drag AOC through the mud, because I think it's been done a lot by um, conservative commentators, it's easy to do. But at the same time, I don't think that we can discredit her by calling her a socialist anymore, because unfortunately, among a lot of people in younger generations, just calling her a socialist doesn't raise the same alarms that it did for past generations. And in a way, this is kind of a case study on the ideas driving millennials towards socialism, or at least policies that they believe will help set up situations that will provide more equality. So what do you see as being the main themes or ideologies driving this documentary? Well, you know, it's a really interesting point, and I'm, I'm happy to uh, drag uh, Alexandria. <laughs> yeah. It's easy to do, and it's tempting. <laughs> yeah. Well, she's, she's an ignorant person. She's not a person with a lot of knowledge. She doesn't really know, know what works and what doesn't work, what has worked and what won't work. You know, she has no subtlety. Uh, even in the film, you see her getting up and making these impassioned pleas She's very attractive. She's both physically attractive and her personality is attractive. And, and it tells, you know, she stands up and you kind of, uh, you straighten up and you watch her. Uh, and, and even when she's speaking, if you pay attention, she speaks in great generalities. Uh, her programs never have a means of support. They never have a way of paying for them. Whenever she's asked, she always seems startled whenever she's asked by somebody, uh, an interviewer, how are you going to pay for that? She always says, well, you know, how did we pay for World War II? As if everything were the kind of crisis, kind of existential crisis the World War II is. And, and so she's, she's a very, very, um, she's very good at being in this film. She, there's a place for her in this film. But I was struck by something else, because I think you're right about this. I think that just attacking her, while fair, because she is ignorant and she is uh, using the, playing off the ignorance of others, but just attacking her is missing the point. The thing that struck me about this is the people who she appeals to and the people who Donald Trump appealed to both had the same complaint, and I think we, it's a complaint that we on the right should listen to. The complaint is that they're being left behind, okay? What they, they keep saying, what she keeps saying, and what all the people keep saying in this documentary is the government doesn't care about us. We have been left behind. The rich uh, thrive, and we're left here with nothing. Uh, and some of them in this documentary are talking about their race. The white people have left them behind. But the people who called out to Donald Trump and who responded to Donald Trump were saying, you know, our economies have been left behind. Our manufacturing base has gone to other countries while people sit in the cities and invest in, in weird you know, uh, mechanisms that we don't even understand. Uh, we can't feed our families anymore. And, and I thought, you know, that's, that is a, a cry that we would be unwise not to pay attention to. It's, it's interesting to me that both the left and the right are working off a contradiction. The contradiction in this movie that kept coming up to me, kept kind of leaping out at me, is these people are complaining that the government doesn't care about us, the government isn't there for us, it's there for itself, it serves the entrenched powers. And so what we want is more government. And you think, well, that's a contradiction, that's silly, what you should want is less government, what you should want is the freedom to do for yourself. I mean, that is obviously the answer. The answer is, here's this tremendous mechanism that only cares about itself and only cares about entrenched power, let's make it even bigger, which is what essentially uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the others are talking about. They should stop and think, no, that's not a good idea. 
But on the right, there's also a, a paradox as well, a contradiction as well, which is this. We believe in the mediating institutions. We believe in the church. We believe in the, the Elks Club. We believe in the family. We believe in all these institutions, uh, the community, that support people without the government having to. Because whenever the government gives you something, it also takes away your freedom. Whatever it gives you, it takes a corresponding amount of your freedom away. But the problem is, is that capitalism is such a successful um, enterprise, capitalism is such a successful system, that it sometimes goes so fast that it leaves people behind, right? I mean, it, it mechanizes uh, their institutions, their uh, uh, occupations, it creates self-driving trucks, it creates machines that do their jobs, and people get left behind and communities get decimated. And a lot of times you hear right-wing conservatives and capitalists say, well, if your community has been decimated, pack up your bags, leave, and go to another community. Uh, learn to code, you know, <laughs> learn to uh, learn a new trade. But that doesn't, that's a kind of contradiction with the idea of mediating institutions. You can't build those institutions overnight. You can't build churches overnight. You can't build communities and cities and, and towns overnight. So I think that in both these cases, what we have to be listening to is we have to be listening to the voice of people who are running as fast as they can but cannot keep up with modernity. And I think that we need a 21st century solution to this. The solution of the left is 19th century, is socialism, which we, we have seen fail again and again. And it fails because it's a primitive system of moving money around. You know, you have money, he doesn't, I'll take your money and I'll give it to him. It's not just immoral, it's also stupid because you've got your money through enterprise and creativity and giving it to somebody else isn't going to give that person creativity and enterprise. You know, part of this is we don't, we can't create heaven on earth. <laughs> There's no perfect economic system. Um, and although... We can certainly try to deregulate and, and it works. Actually, just recently, we've seen in the April job report that the unemployment rate is the lowest it's been for the past 50 years, currently at 3.6%. That does work, but it's Absolutely. still not going to create a heaven on earth and we can't promise perfection here it, it just it can't exist and it, it won't. You know, they say if only we allocated money in different places that if, you know, if only we directed our resources towards a class that is, you know, supposedly, as AOC says, scrounging for leftovers from the one percent. I mean, in a way, it's basically promising or a redemption or a sort of religion. Um, I mean, these are solutions that are promising to solve everything. And that's really the danger of big government, though. Well, first of all, I, I think that you can't have, you have to have real religion. There's just no question about this. We're not going to take care of each other uh, without understanding that that is what God wants us to do. I mean, th th this is a problem. The people who are opposed to capitalism, I'm a very, I'm very pro-capitalism, but the people who are opposed to capitalism are opposed to the fact that people get very far ahead and they don't turn back and say, how can I help the person behind me? Except to say, let's give him money so he goes away. You know, let's give him a guaranteed income so he won't bother me about my success. Uh, let's give him a program. So he, they, they don't say, like, how do I give him dignity? How do I give him purpose? How do I give him meaning in his life? So we need capitalism governed by religion, governed by the ideas of charity and love that are part of, you know, essential part of our founding religion of Christianity. We, we just need that. But also we need to start to think in terms of how do you essentially Christianize capitalism itself? How do you make a capitalism that says, okay, our, our new technology has destroyed your occupation? 
how are we going to get you into the next occupation that you can do so that you can continue to have a purpose, continue to have a meaning, continue to go home to your kids and say, this is what I do. This is what I do in life and in, in the world, and this is how I make myself useful aside from raising you and building a home. So I, I think that that's something that is not that hard to do. We just need to stop thinking in simplistic terms. And one of the things that so offended me about this movie, uh, this uh, Ocasio-Cortez movie, is the simplistic terms that everybody talked about. You know, uh, my child died. If only we had health insurance for all, she would not, that would not have happened. Um, you know, you have been forgotten. If only we got rid of ICE, uh, then everything would be fine. You know, these kind of simplistic, stupid ideas instead of ideas like, well, how do we come into a community where the factory has left and reconstruct it so that people don't have to pack their bags on top of a truck like an Oki and try and start again somewhere else. How do we keep our communities alive in the midst of this turmoil, this creative destruction of capitalism? Those are questions that I think can be answered. I think they have to be answered. When we're talking about this, there's a lot of ideas here that need to be connected. Where does someone start? I mean, what can they read? Where, where can they go for resources to learn more about connecting these ideas that you're talking about? Well, I think, you know, you should start with some of the classic uh, books like The Road to Serfdom. And, and even if you don't read, um, even if you don't read the classics themselves, you can read about them uh, by, you know, people in articles that people um, have written about them, about why, you know, starting to read about why capitalism works so well. Capitalism has cut poverty in half worldwide in an enormously short period of time. You will probably live to see uh, worldwide poverty absolutely eradicated by free market capitalism and by property rights. But also, I think it's it's important to start to look at where the problems are. You know, I mean, I think that in op-eds, you know, one of, one of the, my favorite sites is Real Clear Politics. I go on, and there are op-eds from the left and right where people bring their expertise to say, here's a problem. You know, here's something that's gone wrong. Uh, here's the fact that productivity, for instance, among the top 1% has sprung forward because they have all that technology at their disposal, where among the bottom tiers of society, productivity hasn't sprung forward. Here's how we can help that. Uh, how, here's how we can change it. I think you have to read, and I think you have to listen to people who are not looking for something from you. <laughs> you know, All these politicians want your vote. That's part of the system. But that means that they're going to sell you stuff that you want. You need people who are going to uh, wrong who are going to wrong-foot you, who are going to say, I know you think A, but maybe you should consider B. And you find that in open debate. And one of the biggest problems we have in our society is an antipathy to open debate. People are being banned from Facebook. People are being banned from uh, Twitter. People are being banned from college universities for having ideas that other people don't like. And, of course, I'm not talking about hateful, you know, bigoted ideas, which I'm not afraid of. I, I'm happy to have those people speak, but I just think they're stupid and they're not helpful. I, I want to hear ideas about how to keep people free. Every, every idea you hear has a price in freedom. You know, they say, oh, we'll give you universal health care. You think, well, wait, does that mean that if I want to smoke, I can't smoke? Does that mean if I want to go to this doctor instead of that doctor, I can't? What, what does that mean? Every time somebody offers you something, you should be asking, what is the price in freedom? Because freedom is the one thing that makes life worthwhile. I think freedom comes before everything else because you can't love unless you're free to love. You can't worship unless you're free to worship. You can't choose your faith unless you're free to choose your faith. So I think freedom is where our dignity comes from. Uh, I think that when people talk about religion, they frequently say, why does a good God allow evil? The answer is because he puts freedom first. He knows that our freedom to love and our freedom to choose and more freedom to choose to do good is what makes us human. And everything, everything that the left proposes takes that freedom away. 
and frequently the right proposes freedom without considering the cost in, in humanity. And I think that those are just things that we all have to be thinking about. So I want to go back to some points that you were making about the women, um, their stories being represented in this film. I think it's easy a lot of the times to get caught up in these stories and think they are way more moral than the people currently in Congress. They have real life experiences and they understand me and they can provide the security that I need. But Really, no one is exempt from human tendency towards power um, and even them. And I think one of the core bedrock kind of, you could say, principles of conservatism is that no one is exempt from gaining power, wanting more power, uh, you know, and using it to your own advantage. It's just human nature. Right. Well, I think you're right. And, you know, you've made two uh, universal eternally true points. One is that life is tragic and it can never be made perfect. And whenever anybody is offering you that, they're lying and they're selling you something. And the other is, of course, that power corrupts and ultimate power corrupts, you know, absolutely. Absolute power corrupts, absolutely. So you always want to be looking for ways to um, neutralize power centers. And, And this is an important thing because everybody forgets this when the power center is something they like. Even businesses can get too powerful. Even corporations can get too powerful and have to be curtailed. That's why no system, including capitalism, can be left completely unregulated. We always want to look at where power uh, um, coalesces, because wherever it coalesces, corruption coalesces with it, and abuse coalesces with it. And and that's why, you know, you ask why that movie is so powerful. It's because, in, in fact, these candidates are weaker people taking on more powerful people, and that is always a good system. I mean, in Paradise Lost, even even Satan becomes an interesting, the poem Paradise Lost, even Satan becomes an interesting character because he's taking on an all-powerful God. Whenever, whenever weaker people take on stronger people, they take on an aspect of the heroic. Everybody has always noticed this. And there's a reason for that, because it, unless you have, unless you're talking about God who's absolutely good, power corrupts, and it corrupts human beings, and it corrupts everybody. And so I think that that's just something, you know, our founders thought about every single day, every word of the Federalist Papers, which everybody should read, is trying to figure out what to do to keep the power from coalescing. And it's so fascinating to me to see that university students are never schooled in this. Uh, they never t- nobody talks about it. Nobody says, "Hey, wait, that's giving the government too much power. That's giving this corporation too much power." Nobody thinks that like that power is always always a problem, and it always is. Would you say that this movie is propaganda? No question about it. Yeah, because well, the, the reason it's propaganda is because it doesn't um, it doesn't in, engage in any of the ideas that are being run on. What do people run on? They run on policy and ideas. It never explores the idea of what would happen if you eliminated ICE. It never explores the idea of how much it would cost uh, to have universal health care. You know, I mean, I, I could say, I'll give you universal health care. I could say, I'll give you universal health. You know, <laughs> what, what difference does it make what I say if you don't explore how that idea would work, what it would cost, what it's done to other countries, what it means that, you know, to be free to have your own health care, all those things. It never examines any of that. It simply poses an emotional uh, situation, which is what stories do. It poses the emotional situation that this candidate is powerful and strong and in power, and this woman is coming from beneath to try and beat him. That's an emotional situation. We root for her. That's propaganda because, as I say, you could sell a McDonald's hamburger with that story, 
Or you could sell the truth with that story, and this one basically sells a McDonald's hamburger of socialism. Not to knock McDonald's. I think McDonald's works a lot better than socialism, <laughs> but you know what I mean. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for coming onto the show with me today. It was a pleasure to speak with you about this. It's nice to talk to you. Thanks very much. Every year in June, Acton University brings together nearly 1,000 people in Grand Rapids, Michigan, to explore the foundations of a free society. And this year, we're excited to be opening registration for each evening's dinner and plenary session for those who can't attend the full conference. Join us on the evening of June 18 to hear Marianne Kalam speak firsthand about her witness of Soviet-occupied Estonia and her work to champion freedom after the fall of the Iron Curtain. Save your spot at this event before seats fill up and register at actin.org slash events. Welcome. My name is Dan Huger, librarian and research associate at the Acton Institute. Today, my guest is Father Robert Sirico, co-founder and president of the Acton Institute. Father Robert and I will be discussing the religious left, in particularly the religious attitudes and commitments of prominent politicians and intellectuals on the left, as well as the proper relationship between politics and the Christian faith. Father Robert, welcome to Acton Line, and thank you for being with us. Always a delight. Thank you. Recently, the, the New York Times has kind of been a catalyst for this. Uh, Timothy Egan has recently written um, about some high-profile figures in Democratic Party politics who identify with the Christian left. He wrote an editorial entitled, How to Break the Republican Lock on God. Egan highlights in particular the presidential candidates, uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, uh, Senator Cory Booker, as well as former uh, Georgia gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams. He says, quote, like Abrams and Senator Cory Booker, Mayor Pete says his faith made him a progressive. Scripture directs him to defend the poor, the sick, the marginalized, the social castoffs. End quote. Should a commitment to the care of the poor, the sick, and the marginalized lead one to embrace modern progressivism or indeed any political platform or ideology? Well, this is a fundamental category mistake that they're making. It's a rather simple mistake, uh, and it is that. When we are called to defend the poor, which is manifestly uh, obvious and repeated and a constitutive part of what the Christian revelation is about, they very often want to make it translate immediately into a political agenda or a political platform of some sort. Uh, and I think that's, that's basically the mistake. The fact that the early Christians shared their wealth went and sold their property and placed it at the apostles' feet is an example of Christians being inspired to surrender their property to other people. This is a very different thing than a political platform which redistributes other people's property, which confiscates people's property and uses it for maybe good intentions, maybe not good intentions, maybe well-thought-out Programs may be not so well thought out programs. So it's a category mistake that needs to be distinguished, that has historically been distinguished in Christian theology and to the extent that the church has probed this question of the relationship between God and Caesar. And it is a complete politicization of the gospel message. 
Well said. Um, the Christian left and many Christians on the right as well uh, as the center in American political life have been critical of President Trump's personal behavior and rhetoric. Mayor Pete Buttigieg in particular has been even critical of Mike Pence's religious faith for his stance on same-sex marriage. Um, what role should the speech and life of politicians play in a Christian's evaluation of both as, as both politicians and as sort of tied to their ideological right. commitments. Well, again, I, I don't want to be too repetitive, but mm -hmm. uh, someone once said that the, um, the mark of the mature mind is the ability to make distinctions. So let's make a set of distinctions here. The first is, and I have great sympathy and I'm on record, I don't care for the president's rhetoric. I don't like his behavior, his attitude. I may have said this before here, but I've said it in other forums, that uh, I know that accent very well. I mean, it's a very New York dismissive, sometimes very funny, sometimes very witty, sometimes very insightful, you know, attitude. But it is beneath, I think, both public discourse, uh, uh, general civil discourse, certainly beneath Christian discourse. I mean, we do it. At times we do it. Hopefully we go to confession when we do it, but there is no justification for it. So I get that. I agree with that. That is different, very different from the accusation that Mayor Buttigieg, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing his um, uh, name, uh, has made against Vice President Pence. To my knowledge, Vice President Pence has never said anything despairing on a personal level, dismissive or vulgar or in any way coarse about uh, homosexually oriented people. What he's simply done has been to articulate the, in the case of Christianity, 2,000-year tradition of the church or in the case of Judaism even further back than that with regard to actions that are deemed uh, immoral. To simply say that the articulation of that traditional understanding of human sexuality is itself hate speech, it shows the man is either being politically manipulative uh, or is theologically shallow. The distinction between the sinner and the sin is precisely what we see in the gospel where Jesus encounters the woman who is caught in the act of adultery, loves her, protects her, defends her dignity, says he does not condemn her, and then says, now sin no more. And if we can't say that as a civil society and as a certainly as a religiously informed society, which the mayor claims uh, in his own uh, faith profession, then we can't make any moral statements about anything because to say that something is moral is to say that the opposite of, it, opposite of it is immoral. And if we can't make those moral distinctions and those moral judgments, then I think we uh, can't speak in a moral vocabulary. No, it reminds me of uh, uh, the Apostle John is, you know, I write to you that you may not sin. Right. But if, but you, if you, sin, have sinned, you have sinned. If you have sinned. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is not a question of the person identifying the sin on the part of another person mm -hmm. saying that they themselves are without sin. Mm -hmm. You know, when I say in the confessional, yeah. ego te absolvo, uh, that doesn't mean, oh, and by the way, I ha I'm not in need of absolution because I go to confession too. Does the Christian faith have 
political content. Well, what's the relation between the Christian faith and political ideology? Um, the Christian faith and individual policy issues. Now, now you see, you are asking the right questions. The questions you are identifying here are very important. So let's go through them. What does the Christian faith, uh, or does the Christian faith have political content? Mm-hmm. As such, no. Because the, the Christian faith is not a political system. It is not a theocratic arrangement. When Jesus was asked a kind of policy question, he says, no, 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 wait a minute. There's God and there's Caesar. The policy question he was being asked had to do with taxation. Is it lawful to pay the, the tax? And he says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar, and unto God what is God's. So yeah, and then you have to ask the question, what is Caesar's and what is God's? And the role of Caesar is to govern and maintain justice, to govern, uh, to prevent people from acts of coercion and, uh, and the like. God requires our full devotion. Uh, uh, this in... This sense, it's totalist. The government is not totalist. It's not a totalitarian government. So the mistakes occur on both sides of the political spectrum, the left and the right, because there is this tendency toward uh, a theocratic impulse, or to put it in a more secular rendering, we want to say that what our policies are the society we construct is moral, and and it should be. But our first and primary and normative expression of morality is not through legislation. It's not through the state. It's through a culture. It's through a set of beliefs. It's through a a consensus or a an agreed upon philosophy of morality. Uh, and I think this is the mistake that people are making in the po- modern discourse. That, uh, that the Christian faith has to have political content, as though there was a verse or two or three in the Bible that tells us uh, about the levels, proper levels of taxation or their disposition. And then the relation of the Christian faith to political ideology should be simply that the Christian faith transcends any specific temporal political order because the church transcends history. So what she says in the book of Acts and what she says uh, today should be consistent because it it comes from revelation. It comes from a set of principles. And the political currents come and go depending on the geography, Mm -hmm. depending on the economy, depending on the rulers, depending on the effectiveness of democracy or, or a thousand other contingent points. So the... Role of the Christian faith ought to inspire certain principles that can be adapted prudentially <clears throat> to given contingent circumstances of, of, of particular people. Uh, where the confusion comes in very often is that, especially when a state exceeds its proper function as maintaining order, running the judiciary, providing for the common good and the uh, protection of borders and things like that. These generally agreed upon roles of what the state should be in their limited capacity. When it exceeds that, for instance, in, in areas of property, 
can the church build a facility on this or can the church organize a certain charitable functions guided by her moral teaching and the state says no you have to have our permission to love the poor to love the poor to clothe the hungry to uh, take care of orphans and you must do it according to these laws and these contradict these laws these civil laws contradict the law of God, the church will resist that, will rebel against it, or to use St. Peter's words, we would rather obey God than man, uh, then it seems that the church is being political. But it's really not the church being political. The church is being the church, and politics has become religious, in yeah. effect. And we spoke earlier on an episode of Act in Line about uh, Father Ernesto Cardinal and the Catholic Church's prohibition on clergy holding public office. Where do you think the line between religious leadership and political activism lies? And that's something that with these sort of distinctions we're trying to make that, that clergy have to be particularly aware and mindful of. I think one of the greatest examples of um – Religious impulse and religious leadership or, or two great examples and they really one is an outgrowth of the other uh, would be in the movement of abolition uh, and that was this religious tenant that said that human beings have a certain intrinsic dignity that they should not be the chattel or the property of other people and a, a growing movement to express that moral sentiment, that moral belief, grew and weakened the institutions of slavery. And then, of course, one of the outgrowths of that was the early work of Martin Luther King. Dr. Martin Luther King was, first and foremost, a minister of the gospel. And when you read or listen to his sermons or his early writings, particularly uh, his highly sophisticated letter from Birmingham jail, you, you see a moral leadership. Now, that moral leadership can have a political effect, but King was never a politician. And I think the greatest religious leaders can have the greatest cultural impact, which can in turn have a great uh, civil and political impact as well. But I think to confuse the two is very dangerous because then you have what uh, especially progressives fear most and have accused Christians of very often, and, and rightly so in some cases, of being theocrats. And I think theocracy is wrong, uh, not only because it hurts the society in which it exists, but because it hurts the witness of the gospel. It reduces the witness of the gospel to a contingent uh, prudential and political uh, policy rather than the transcendent revelation of God in the person of Christ to the world. To close, I'd like to bring up a recent piece by uh, David Bentley Hart, who's an affiliate scholar of the Notre Dame Institute for Advanced Study and a contributing writer to First Things. The piece was entitled, uh, quote, Can We Please Relax About Socialism, unquote. Um, Joe Carter had a nice response to his argument on the Act and Power blog. Um, the piece is really mean-spirited. It uh, impugns the honesty, intelligence, motives, and even the physical appearance of people who disagree with him. Referring to the piece, the economist Tyler Cowen asked the question, 
quote, whatever you think of the socialism discussion, should Christians have and indeed display so much contempt for other human beings, unquote. When we disagree with others about these political prudential questions, what's our duty towards them? Uh, the thing I want to focus on, I think, I think Hart has become a caricature of himself. Uh, he may want to argue against uh, free markets and capitalism and all that, and that's certainly a legitimate argument to have. But to do it in the manner in which he does in the New York Times and in these other pieces, and I'm not sure he's still writing for first things. Uh, at least I think they've probably cut down on him. The, the thing I want to focus on here is how sad it is that the New York Times is publishing uh, an article with such rhetoric, with such ad hominem attacks that substitute. I mean, I read that article and I was three or four paragraphs into it before I got to the argument he was trying. So the argument is very thin. Uh, there's something strange going on at the New York Times. Of course, a lot of people on our side of, of these questions are going to say this, that's been a long time coming. But I have always had a great respect for the New York Times, even though I disagree with them. I, I've told people I, I listen to NPR every morning, uh, you know, because I, I like the, the tone of the news and everything. Uh, and I, I do it for penance. <laughs> but the, the bias of these uh, agencies, NPR and now the New York Times is coming to the fore. And what is very strange about the New York Times, both, both in the publication of the Hart piece, but also this very alarming anti-Semitic cartoon that appeared recently. Yeah, and the then another one, uh, another s similar kind of thing. Uh, something strange is happening at the New York Times. I don't know if they've just gone nuts because of Trump uh, or if just the whole standard has dropped. But uh, it's very sad to see the gray old lady uh, toothless. Now, well, thank you so much for being with us, Father Robert. And uh, you've certainly given us a lot to think about and always enjoy speaking with you. Always great to be here. Thank you. Thank you for listening today. If you have any feedback about this podcast, I would love to hear it. Every week, our podcast team is working to bring you the best show, and we couldn't do it without you. Let me know what you think about this podcast and email me at actonline at acton.org. This episode is produced and edited by me, Caroline Roberts, with audio mixing by Doug Nagel.